Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Josh Brzezinski, co-founder and partner at Trajectory Energy Partners. Trajectory brings together landowners, electricity users, and communities to develop solar energy projects with strong local support. Their team brings together a deep background in solar development, financing, and policy, as well as agriculture and community engagement. Josh brings to Trajectory Energy Partners a comprehensive appreciation and commitment to the environment, first working in energy as a visiting researcher at the University of Cape Town. Then he was an attorney where he represented the renewable sector at Wilson, Sassini, Goodrich, and Rosati. He also worked with the Microgrid Investment Accelerator, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, the White House Council on Environmental Quality, and the Natural Resources Defense Council in Beijing. This is a different kind of episode in that it's a very local one, in the trenches, spending time with farmers, local communities, developing community solar on one piece of land, one project at a time. But it's also a critical piece of the equation, the last mile, if you will, in that you can have all the policy in the world, but if people aren't out there in the trenches, building the relationships, building the trust, and doing good work day in and day out, project in and project out, we wouldn't be making any progress in the climate fight. So I really appreciate Josh's perspective in this episode, and I think you will as well. Josh Bashinsky, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I have to admit, although, so I think it was Dave Lieb that that put us in touch, and I, I know you guys are old friends, and, and he and I, so he was doing Bump at the same time that I was doing Runkeeper, so we kind of grew up in mobile apps together. So, But even though we, so we've only met once before, I still kind of, I feel like we're friends. Yeah. And so I had a busy day and and something had to give. And so I did less prep for years than the other ones that because is, uh, because you're in the friend camp. So I'll just put that out there right right to start. That is started. fair. That is fair. Well, I'm, I'm happy to chat prep or no prep. But honestly, some of the best discussions have been no prep. So, and, and we already met before. So I know, I know enough to be dangerous, but you're interesting because you, so, I mean, pretty much your whole career has been in and around climate. Yeah. yeah so and even I, like undergrad degree. Right? Yeah. No, yeah. I, I knew very early on. So, I mean, I guess to start there, I got into climate because, you know, I was always interested in the environment. And in fact, I was, you know, cleaning out my high school papers at some point recently and found the model UN resolution that I wrote during high school model UN, you know, convincing the other 17-year-old delegates to adopt the Kyoto Protocol. So, clearly- Wow, that is not what I was doing <laughs> in high school. <laughs> it wasn't the only thing I was doing, but th- those were the records I kept, other things I didn't. So, uh, you know, this interest goes back, but I had this really, I think, seminal moment in, in my early intellectual interest in climate, which was as a freshman in college, I took a f- seminar with Steve Schneider, who's a climatologist, and Steve was your quintessential science communicator. So he was a brilliant climatologist, had done a lot of early climate research since, you know, the 70s and 80s. And he recognized that this was both a problem and a problem that needed policy solutions and that we needed to communicate about it. 
So if you can imagine, this was a guy who went on Johnny Carson, who advised Al Gore, who was involved in the early IPCC process, and he taught a freshman seminar. And so I took that seminar, was instantly hooked both on the the scale of the problem, it seemed like something worth committing my career to, but also on the way that climate requires every discipline, knowing something about economics, about policy, about you know, science and business and how you have to put those things together to do something. So I was really fortunate to work with Steve, was his TA, was his research assistant. Unfortunately, he's not with us any longer, but he inspired a cohort of students that I count myself among who are out in the world working on climate change. So you came out all fired up to enter the climate fight and where did you go? So immediately I did my undergrad and master's at Stanford and immediately came here to D.C. where we're sweating in a heat emergency. As you, I mean, it's audio, <laughs> so you can't tell by my shirt. But if you, if you did see my shirt. You, you, could, you yeah. could tell we were in a heat emergency. Yeah. And I worked at what was then called the Pew Center on Global Climate Change. It's now C2ES. And this was a think tank that really pioneered some of the early work with businesses to engage on climate and was really working on what are the economically rational solutions. And so we did a lot of early work, and this was the early 2000s, so I was working at the state level. There wasn't a lot of movement in federal climate policy, so I worked on the earliest- We're in such a different place now. (laughs) A theme of this conversation (laughs) is going to be looking back on the last 20 years and, and seeing a lot of things come full circle, unfortunately. But, you know, worked on the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, New England, worked on AB 32, which was Governor Schwarzenegger's key climate legislation, the Global Warming Solutions Act, 2006. And so I was in D.C. and then I started Pew's office in Sacramento, which was me, and served on loan to advisory committees that the government put together to advise the state on how to implement you know, a cap-and-trade program. And so I worked on two of the early cap-and-trade programs that have served as both models, and unfortunately, we thought that they were going to expand across the country, turn into federal legislation, and we'd have a giant market for carbon, but that, that really hasn't been the story. And that's the, I mean, it's the closest we came until <laughs> now there's like rumblings with the, with the Green New Deal, but there, I mean, there hasn't been any climate policy that's been even remotely as, as significant. Yeah, and, and that, that was my feeling in 2007, 2008, I decided... I was going to go to law school because I saw either the opportunity to do policy or the opportunity to, to do business-related work was going to require, I thought, a law degree. And I thought, well, look, if I go to law school in 2007, and this was right when you know Waxman-Markey was becoming an opportunity. And, and in fact, I, I started at Chicago and right when Obama was elected. And I thought, look, I've lost my opportunity to be one of the parents of federal climate legislation because it's going to happen while I'm in law school. You know, once again, here we are, you know, 10, 11 years later. And oh, you're so lucky. I, I, yeah. there, there's still that opportunity. If you spend a lot of time in D.C., you know, the Clean Air Act has a lot of parents, a lot of people claim parentage. And I, unfortunately, there's still that opportunity for us to do that on climate. That's like tech startups, though. It's like successful ones have 300 founders and unsuccessful ones have no founders. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Well, hopefully, you know, we get to, we get to claim some parentage in a couple of years. We'll, we'll see what happens. But <laughs> that I thought was the opportunity cost of going to law school. And I was absolutely wrong. 
Got it. And so you got out of law school and then what? So law school, I did a couple things in law school that really focused my interest in helping clean tech companies thrive. So I spent some time in China just for a summer working at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And that was eye-opening because you could see the scale of the problem in a different way. And partly I think that's just a function of being in you know, a new environment and an emerging, rapidly industrializing, rapidly developing country. And, you know, I'd ride my bike around Beijing knowing that, a, you know, 10 years prior, I would have been one of, you know, tens of thousands in the street. But now the streets were clogged with cars. There was still, you know, a little bit of room for, you know, bicycles left. And I don't know if those bike lanes are still there. And I also did two other things that sort of set my path in in law school. So one was I worked at the White House Council on Environmental Quality for part of the summer. And that's a really important federal agency that helps with a lot of the environmental-related planning, you know, when you're building new infrastructure. And I could also tell that you know, the time for climate policy in an ambitious way, simply because of what the sort of electoral landscape looked like and, you know, what Congress looked like was not going anywhere. And I also spent some time at Wilson Sonsini, which is a very large law firm based in Silicon Valley. That's a tech-focused, startup-focused law firm that had and still has a really robust clean energy practice. And that was just really exciting. So I got to represent clients who were doing just a wide variety of really exciting work on climate and clean energy. That's where I went after law school. I spent over almost five years representing clean tech companies that were doing everything from residential solar, utility scale solar, to run of the river hydro, high altitude novel wind, building electrification, building controls, energy efficiency finance, everything from you know, venture finance, project development, project finance. And it was it was great. We have- Sounds like this journey I'm on only with more of a deliverable and more of an income. More of a deliverable, more of an income, a lot more paperwork. So- I don't you know. have any of that. <laughs> so we- Seems like a good trade though. Yeah. <laughs> At, at different points, you you'll, you feel differently about that trade-off. But it was just fascinating to get to watch Silicon Valley grapple with how to finance clean energy. And it was at the time, it was sort of after the bubble had burst around the first clean tech VC revolution. And one of the things that I think people started to realize is that venture is not well-suited to hardware deployment. And scaling business models in clean energy don't always make VC returns. And so how you get around that and how you use VC money, which is, you know, very willing to take risk to do things where you may not hit your 10x on you know, any any company in your portfolio, at least the way the world looked in you know, 2011, 2012, was something that and I think we're still grappling with. I totally agree. And it, it's something that I mean, I think when I started this journey seven months ago, innovation was one of the first places I looked when looking at climate because innovation is all that I know. And I was fairly disillusioned, at least initially coming in, because it seemed like a lot of the innovation either was very mission-focused but but didn't have great potential for scale, mm-hmm. or it had great potential for scale 
and it either just had kind of a greenish tint but wasn't really putting decarbonization in the problem at the center, or it you know, had 10 years in a lab and $2 billion for an MVP plant and lots of science risk and huge capital intensity and reliance on project finance and all these things that I just didn't know anything about and didn't wasn't necessarily wired for in terms of patients and you know no phd and 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 things like that and and i think the other thing for me is just that i found that climate is such a systems problem that you can't just focus on one area so if you want to solve an aspect of it it takes multiple things right it's not just going to be innovation it's not just going to be policy, right? It's you know, it's going to take research, it's going to take innovation, it's going to take policy, it's going to take government, it's it's going to take different types of capital. I mean, it, it looks a lot different. So, so some of the people that have been coming at it in more of a multi-pronged way are really intriguing to me versus like you know, and not to take away from being a founder or or being a funder, right? But it, at least thus far, it just seems like it's only one piece of a of a bigger puzzle of required elements. Right, and yeah. and that's exactly look. There there is an enormous amount of systemic inertia that we're fighting against, and you need people who are doing the big systems thinking. But you also need, I mean, you also need the people who know how to execute and the people who see the opportunities, whether it's integrating distributed distributed energy into the grid, whether it's doing the basic R&D to get higher efficiency solar, or whether it's thinking about new forms of mobility. You, you need all those things. Silicon Valley is really good at you know, scaling software companies. And it's where a lot of you know the smartest you know engineers end up, and where a lot of climate solutions come from. Whether it's you know academic places like Stanford or Berkeley, or or, or whether it's from the national labs and so on. And at the same time, we need other ways of funding that work, and you need the R and D pipeline and money that it's really hard to get private sector companies to invest in, much less you know VC that. You know, doesn't want to take a lot of technology risk. Okay, so you had that nugget of insight while yeah. you're a lawyer, and what'd you do with it? Well, that? so first of all, I did a lot of deals. So we, you know, represented some great clients who were doing really innovative work. Some of them are th- still thriving. Some of them are no longer with us. That's sort of the nature of startups. And you know, what I did was a lot of deal work. But what I also realized was that. This was an industry and that I was really excited about, that I wanted to continue my career supporting. But I knew that you know, being at a law firm, as many people find, was not where I wanted to be for the rest of my life. And frankly, I, I stayed for so long because I had great colleagues and great clients and you know, great work. Five years in, in law firm years is, is a lot of years in human years. And so at the end of about my fourth four and a half years in, I had an opportunity to move here to DC to do something totally different, which is I went to work in government. And so I went to the US government's development finance institution, which is the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC. And OPIC finances development projects all over the world, does everything from dairies to ag to health equipment 
But the reason I went there was OPEC was becoming a huge force in how the U.S. government was making good on its obligations under the Paris Agreement and investing in emerging market renewables. Everything from large-scale wind to off-grid microgrids. And I spent about a year working on some, you know, what we call blended finance facilities to put together concessional finance, OPEC financing, and private finance to drive investment in emerging markets to solve energy access, to solve climate change, and to bring economic development in countries that desperately need all three. Why don't you tell me about Trajectory Energy Partners? Cause yeah. Because that's what you're doing now. But then it would also be great to just hear about, because I think unlike some guests that I've had on, you know, you have quite a a diverse background within the climate world. So it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on, you know, whether there's common, th- you know, whether Trajectory is like the culmination of all the different things you've done or 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 kind of what made it the the right thing for you to really kind of anchor on. Yeah, sure. So uh, Trajectory Energy Partners is a relatively new company. We are a solar development company. And what that means is we work with communities to build solar projects with strong local support. And we, uh, my partners all came from different backgrounds, but we had two things in common. One was really deep experience financing and developing solar projects. And the, two, and the second is a deep and firm understanding of politics and policy as it relates to both building community support for something, but also engaging with policy to get projects done. And so I got connected with a couple partners who have those two qualities. So one of my partners, John Carson, was actually Obama's national field director in 2008. And then worked in the White House in a variety of positions, and then went to Solar City, where he ran their Solar Ambassador program. And you know, John brings obviously this strong background in community organizing. He's run campaigns for you know, decades, but he's an engineer at heart and by training. And he really wanted to build solar. And similarly, my colleague Megan Strand spent about ten years at Chadbourne, which is now Norton Rose, a law firm representing banks that were investing in solar. And so she brings, you know, a deep understanding of what banks are looking for when they develop solar. And, you know, my colleague David Lipowitz similarly has an extremely long background, first as a political organizer and then doing solar development, did a bunch of Amazon's projects while he was at Solar City, and, and has worked at a number of developers. We all came away with the same conclusion based on our careers, which is, one, solar development requires really high commitment to doing quality work because it, it's it's complicated, frankly. We need to both make sure that when we do a project, we're satisfying the local community, we're, we are creating a project that banks are going to be willing to finance, that we're building a project that is not going to get flooded and wash away in the you know storms that we're seeing in the Midwest right now. So Trajectory is focused on doing high-quality development with local support we are focused in the Midwest and the Mid-Atlantic. And those are places, particularly in the Midwest, where solar is a new type of development that people aren't used to seeing. And so one of the things that we are really proud of is that we work really hard to engage with local communities to help educate them about the benefits of solar, about what to expect, 
so that, you know, if we develop a project in the community, we want to be welcome back. And this is the kind of work that is going to be critical, not just to deploy solar at scale, but to deploy a lot of the types of climate solutions that, you know, you and your guests talk about. We need new financing models. We need new policy. But we also need that face-to-face -face personal engagement, which is going to both ensure that there's support for solutions and that we're able to deploy them. And so when you say develop, what role are, are you guys actually taking on in the process? Yeah. So we are early stage developers, which means we will go out and using a combination of GIS and our experience understanding what makes a good solar project, identify certain parcels, approach a landowner, and agree with them to lease their land to try to develop solar for you know, 30 plus years. We need to make sure that project is close to a place we can interconnect it to the grid. And then we need to do all of the early work, making sure that we have the permits we need, that we have an agreement with the utility, that we have someone who's willing to buy the power, someone who's willing to buy the recs if they're recs, someone who is willing to finance that project and to own that asset in the long run. And so we really are have to put together a lot of different threads to build a successful project. And that's that's what solar development looks like. And it means you need a pretty diverse set of skills to build a high quality portfolio. From a landowner standpoint, what's the pitch? So we have mostly landowners who are looking at their land and saying, I can continue farming or you know letting this life out because I haven't done any that don't have you know something else I can do with it um, or you know in certain areas they're thinking well is this going to become a strip mall or residential development in the next 10 or 15 years now if it's the latter that they think you know there's going to be a strip mall that wants to buy their land in you know the next 10 years that's probably not a good place for solar even whether or not that's true but what we provide our landowners is the ability to say every year, I'm going to get rent from this solar project. And that's incredibly powerful for farmers who face extremely uncertain income. And, you know, you look at the, the what's happening just this year, right? So corn across the Midwest is having an incredibly hard time. There's been flooding. There's been massive rains. And you need a couple days for your fields to dry out to be able to plant. And let me just tell you, as an aside, I've learned a lot more about corn farming in the last two years than I knew before. And, and frankly, that's one of the joys of this job is, is working with local communities and, and understanding where they're coming from. And so if, if you can't plant corn or if the corn crop is affected by flooding or heat waves like we're seeing across the Midwest, you know, or any number of weather events, which are, as you know, becoming more extreme, then you're facing a lot of uncertainty, not to mention, you know, tariff battles and so on that are going to affect corn and soy pricing. What we say to a farmer is, we're going to take that uncertainty out of your income stream for the next 30 years. And that's really powerful. And at the same time, you know, we're going to generate tax revenue for your community and we're going to bring you clean energy. And so the types of projects that we build and that, that we're focused on are sort of in the typically sort of two to 20 megawatts. So you're talking 15 to 20 acres to 50, 100 plus. These are not, you know, 100, 200 megawatts that you're interconnecting to 
the transmission lines, these are a sort of smaller project, but it means that you're in a lot of communities. And so you have to think about, well, what's this community going to expect? And they're going to have a lot of questions. And part of what we do is we have to educate communities for whom solar is new. What are some of the biggest misconceptions or surprises for communities when you're in there doing your education? Well, you know, for, for most of your listeners, solar's old hat, right? We know a lot about it. We're comfortable with it. And it's just a question of deploying it. But for a lot of the communities we work in, if, if we're the first person who's ever talked to them about solar. And, you know, some of the questions range from, you know, some things that we might think are a little silly to some things that, you know, you may not think of off the top of your head. So, for instance, we have a project that we're developing in Poplar Grove, Illinois, and, and the farmer just to the north actually used to own the land that we're developing on. And he said, you know, look, I'm concerned about the drainage. You got to understand across the Midwest, we have replaced tall grass prairie with drainage tile. That drainage tile is what keeps, you know, these farms alive because massive flooding aside, keeps water in the ground, drains it, and it makes, you know, this a viable place for farming. So they're really worried that you're going to puncture drainage tile. They're really worried that you're going to do something else that affects how water runs over the land. And it's really critical. And you got to understand that. So we get those types of questions. We get questions, not so much the, the are my lights going to go out if the sun doesn't shine? But it turns out that actually real people are, are more sophisticated than the you know pundits who, who say that sort of thing. But we get a lot of questions about, you know, are the panels going to reflect and burn down my house or blind me on the road as I drive by or electrocute my children or, you know, so on. And so we have to spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the safety and the performance and how to integrate this new technology into their communities. Because if you drive down the road and you expect cornfield, silo, you know, mall, this is something new and you're going to have questions and, and reasonably so. Once the solar goes in, who accesses it? Who's, who's the end customer? So a lot of the projects that we're developing are what are known as community solar projects. So community solar is a really interesting way to both build support for solar, build financing for solar, and give people access to supporting solar who couldn't otherwise, right? So the idea is simply that you can subscribe to a community solar project. So we build something, we build a project, you subscribe to it, and then you are credited for the production of that solar project or the portion of it that you subscribe to. It's a really powerful tool because if you're a renter, if you have trees over your house, if you have an old roof, there's any number of reasons why an individual couldn't put solar on the place they live. Community solar solves the problem of how do those people support solar. And at the same time, it also particularly the way it's been structured in the U.S., allows us to put solar in a distributed fashion across the grid, which has a lot of benefits to the grid. And I think it's got another benefit as well, which is that you're building comfort with this, partly because you have companies like mine out in the world telling people about solar, giving landowners a reason to support it, and giving you know farmers another income stream having people save money on their electricity bills from supporting a project in their community. And so there's a part of it which is about 
sort of evangelizing solar in some sense that, that's actually pretty powerful. And, and it's one of the, the reasons why community solar is an interesting model. It's not the only type of project that we develop, but it is a really interesting way to deploy solar. And when you say they get credit for it, does that mean that they've still got whatever other energy source they were they were already getting from the grid? So typically the way it works is that they will subscribe to a project, which means they enter, enter into a contract with the project and the utility is typically responsible for giving them a bill credit equal to the amount that they subscribe for. So if you produce 50 kilowatt hours from the community solar project that you've subscribed to, that gets credited off your bill. The utilities obviously have an interest in you know, keeping that number pretty low, but that's you know one of the challenges with this model is that you have to work closely with utilities to, to implement them and it's why it requires legislation, for one thing, and um, it's why it it is not as straightforward as just simply being able to uh, get clean energy on your, you know, through your utility. What type of legislation does it require? So you essentially have to force the utilities to set up this bill crediting mechanism. We have to tell them that they have to allow you to subscribe to another project and to a community solar project and to credit you the amount that that's been produced so because this you guys are because this community solar project is contributing energy to the grid it's crediting back to the consumer for the energy that you that they subscribe to so they're paying you but the utility is crediting them meaning that you're getting the revenue that the utility otherwise would have gotten precisely got it right but the utility still gets the the energy but i mean isn't it I mean, it's a, it's a wash, right? It's not like they're doing it at a loss. It, it's just less incremental revenue. Yeah, I mean, it's less incremental revenue for them, and it means another level of complication as well, right? They've got to you know, administer this, this program. Community solar is not simple to administer, although there are a lot of companies that are figuring out how to do this. We're not in the you know, subscription management business, and there are a lot of companies that are, and they do interesting and really important work. And I, I think some of your guests are in that business, but that's not what we do. We're really about putting these projects together and then letting someone else deal with the software problem of how to manage these subscriptions and interact with the utility. Got it. So are these basically one-off construction projects? Is that, is that a way to look at them? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say in some sense, the the closest analog is real estate development. That's really, you know, what we're doing, except that we're engaging with the, you know, electricity infrastructure as your added complication. And then you layer on top of that construction financing, permanent financing, tax equity, rec sales, et cetera. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pieces to it, but and we don't do we don't do construction, right? So we'll we'll take a project till it's ready to construct, sell it to one of our partners. We have a bunch of great partners who are looking for projects that they want to own long term. And then once we've gotten it to that point, and we have a partner that we are confident can take that project and own it for you know, the next thirty years, that's sort of the the endpoint for us. What's required up front to get a business like this going? Does it take a lot of capital? So. Uh, yes and no. We can be pretty capital efficient because a lot of what we're doing is just getting out into the world and identifying sites. So, you know, there's some upfront costs in terms of personnel, but 
really where it starts becoming more expensive is as you're doing the permitting work, as you're doing the technical studies, the interconnection studies, the geotech, a lot of the early stage development costs are non-trivial. But is there any world where you're doing those before a project's been committed? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh so yeah. So you do them like on so spec, essentially. Yeah. So, right. And and that's, I mean, that's this business, right, is is we are, you know, arguably the, the riskiest most sort of uncertain part of solar development is this early stage development. Does the upside reflect that? Hopefully, usually. But, you know, it's actually really interesting because the market is now such that investors are increasingly recognizing the value of solar and other renewable assets. And both from the perspective that you know, there's a seven plus percent return that you can see consistently over the long run, but also because you're looking at assets that are going to reliably generate revenue over the next 20 or 30 years. And those are hard investments to find. And so there are a lot of asset managers who are increasingly interested in this sector. And what that means is actually right now, you know, we sort of see that it's sort of a seller's market in terms of high quality development assets. There's more money than good projects. And so, you know, we feel pretty confident right now that we're in the right part of this market. But it's not the place to be if you want to be comfortable that you're not taking a lot of risk, right? You've, you've got to do a lot of work up front before you start seeing revenue. What's the goal with all of this? What does success look like? Yeah. So success for trajectory means a couple things. So first is, you know, we want to be good partners. Partners is in our name not only because, you know, I have some great partners in this business, but we want to be a good partner to our landowners. We want to be a good partner to the communities we work in, and we want to be a good partner to our investors, our long-term asset owners, our financing partners. What success looks like for us, though, is I think really about upping the game in early-stage development. We think it's important to do a really good job working with local communities. If you look at a state, for instance, like just toward North Maryland, they just signed an RPS that is going to require the deployment of something like 6x the amount of solar that they've deployed thus far. It's a huge increase. There's not a ton of land in Maryland to do that. And if you are thoughtful about how you are going to be developing projects, communities will welcome you back. And if you're not, you're going to car, you know, cross off counties, cities, towns from being a place where you can reliably develop solar. And so we've already seen in some of the places we've worked where other developers have not done a great job of communicating or following up or being engaged members of the community. And those broken promises are terrible for our industry. And so for us, success is about doing a good job in execution so that we have communities we can go back to and build solar again, and so that our partners want to keep building with us as well. And so that's success. Now, compared to the sort of, you know, a lot of the the, the you know, Silicon Valley style software our partners who, you know, work on subscriptions, this scales in a very different way. So there are definitely development shops that have scaled very, very quickly, but that comes with a lot of risk as well, right? Either they're taking on a lot of debt 
they can't service or you know making other compromises in terms of project quality or their other commitments their partners that they're not able to uphold so we are trying to be really thoughtful about how we grow and that requires a high level of confidence that our model works right so we've got to be sure that we're doing a good job with our project development and we need to be sure that you know we have the right partners who are invested in the long run and who see the value in the projects we're building and where does climate change fit into all of this yeah so i think there are two big takeaways from the kind of work that we're doing from a climate perspective Number one is you just have to have people who are doing this work. You have to execute well in deployment. And the radical changes required, the radical infrastructure investments required, the radical fossil retirements that are required mean that we need to execute on the energy transition across you know, transit, across energy, across the built environment. And that requires solid execution. You guys are like the last mile kind of thing. We are. I mean, that's yeah. that's precisely right. It's like the front line of the last mile. However, you know, you want to think about it. You can have innovative financing models and, and they're critical and I've worked on them and you can have, you know, better customer engagement and you can do all sorts of things to scale these solutions. But at the end of the day, you need to have people who are out there bringing solar to rooftops, to farmland, to deserts. And it is it really is about being, yeah, that sort of last mile provider because we don't get there otherwise. And I think, you know, some of the things that we're learning about solar deployment are applicable across a wide range of climate solutions. And so it's not just, you know, we're gonna we're gonna, you know, build a better widget you got to sell them and you have to have communities support them. Well, you have your work cut out for you, but something, I don't mean you have your work cut out for you like you have headwind. <laughs> I mean, you have your work cut out for you, meaning you're like, you're focused trying to get a young company, you know, into orbit, right? Yeah. But something for you to think about though, is that if there are other areas that could use this expertise, then it's like, what are the pieces that are transferable and what are the pieces that are domain specific? And is there some world, if you were to think, more ambitiously and maybe from a higher risk, higher upside, but also higher impact on the problem standpoint, right? Then, you know, is there some type of holding company, for example, that could attack different verticals and have a model of partnership where you collaborate with the domain expertise that you're lacking, but you bring the stuff that is transferable, community organizing, et cetera? Right. Yeah. And I think that's right. And I think you're seeing some models of that in financing. You're seeing people figure out how to do these deals you know more replicably across domains solar development storage development those don't look that different we do them together there are plenty of other opportunities like that yeah we're focused on this one vertical but there certainly are opportunities to do something like you know this model in other in other realms and you know and and i would say it's one of the things, you know, that my career has taught me is you've, you know, got to put your shoulder to the wheel wherever you are. And climate requires that in a lot of places. So, you know, I think, you know, as, as you've been thinking about where you engage, it seems to me like one of the questions you're asking a lot is, well, how can I be most effective? And, you know, I ask myself that question all the time. And, and I think a lot of people who, who work on climate 
think about personal efficacy because you know you, you have to and then at the same time you got to find the right lane for you so you know one of the things i love about trajectory is that for me i get to use so many different skill sets in a week right so i will do everything from sitting at a farmer's literal kitchen table negotiating a lease to engaging with state regulators to help them improve their policy deployment to working with our financing part- partners to get our projects across the finish line, to you know doing a lot of operations-related work and making sure we're doing things as efficiently as we can. And I love that, right? I get to, to engage all parts of my brand and all parts of you know, my experience as a lawyer, as a policy person. And I think it's you know a really interesting set of problems to tackle and it's problems that need to get solved. So I think there are there are a lot of lessons out of the the work that we're doing that are applicable in other verticals. And then at the same time, if, if you have too much FOMO about it, you don't focus on what you need to be doing. Yeah, it's like anything. It's a, it's a constant struggle. The, the grass is always greener. And and if you take a step back, if 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 we do want to see more, you know. More, more solar, more renewables, more clean energy, more zero carbon energy, et cetera. Just kind of, if we want deep decarbonization to occur faster and more effectively, what would be the one thing that, if you could change anything, I would say either domestically or globally, or answer it with whatever's going to have the highest impact, right? Like what would be the one thing that you put in place that's not in place today? Right. I would say the one type of institution. So if I was, if, if was going to answer the question in, in that way, so setting politics aside, setting sort of other, you know, snap our fingers, magical thinking, I think one type of institution that would be enormously powerful is a national institution that's mandate required investment in climate solutions. And included in that mandate was an ambition to expand the set of projects, the set of technologies that it could finance. Because we have solar financing down pretty well. We have storage financing down pretty well. We have wind financing down pretty well. We don't necessarily have financing solutions for lots of the other technologies, infrastructure, investments that are going to be necessary to tackle climate change. Having a dedicated institution that both at scale and at the edge of financial innovation was working to you know build the products we need the financial products we need to solve climate change i think that would be an enormously powerful institution and that's a government institution well yeah so i mean there are different ways to do this but there are there are a couple examples of these around the country there's connecticut green bank in our backyard montgomery county has a green bank dc is is putting together a green bank there are some examples and you know people are starting to work on this in, in emerging markets. The Development Bank of South Africa is, is setting up a green bank. So where isn't it then? Because if that's your wish, it sounds like it's already happening. I just named 50% of all green banks in the world, <laughs> right? So, so more, more coverage. But it's, it's not just, it's, it's also scale, right? So these, these are institutions who don't necessarily have the resources or the independence or the stability to, to do this. So yeah, this is, that's like naming, you know, three small solar developers when we, what we need are, you know, 
a 10x Sunrun and a 10x SolarCity, et cetera. And that was the broad question, but what about on a more narrow basis, your slice? If you could change one thing that would unlock the trajectory for community solar, what would it be? Aside from a really ambitious national RPS, you would not believe how difficult local regulations, both from utilities and zoning ordinances, make it to build solar. If it's anything like local regulations around other stuff, then I would believe it. Yeah, it it is (laughs) mind-boggling. And (laughs) two years ago, I had had only scratched the surface of how difficult this was. It wasn't something I was doing, you know, day to day as a lawyer, I sort of, this was, was, was not, projects would come to me and they would have done this. Did not realize the incredible amount of work, number of meetings, the amount of time. And frankly, these, they're, they're just not written or built um, for consistent solar development. And they're different in every jurisdiction. So, you you would not believe the plethora of different zoning regulations. And these are in places that are allowing, you know, solar, if not by right, which, you know, it would be great, but but by, you know, a special use permit process. I've now done this dozens of times. It is incredible the amount of paperwork and the amount of, you know, face time that goes into it. And I love educating communities about solar. I love engaging with local officials. I love helping people understand how solar will benefit their community. But the reason that soft costs for solar are so high in this country and you know higher than than they need to be for us to do responsible development is because you've got a patchwork quilt of really burdensome regulations that make it really hard to build solar. And, you know, look, that that's no different from lots of other climate solutions, right? So in, you know, in D.C., building a new bike lane is incredibly difficult. And I bike my kids to school every day. There are a million places where it would be completely reasonable to build a bike lane. But that kind of change is difficult from a regulatory perspective. And frankly, it's it's difficult from a what, you know, your community's expectations perspective is. I don't actually see a lot of differences sometimes between, you know, building solar in the places that that we're working and, you know, building a new bike lane. So what's the answer? Well, you know, we can't, you know, undermine a couple centuries of, of federalism. And, you know, there's only so much you can do on, on model rules. You know, the way that the federal government typically has done this is created incentives for states and local jurisdictions to adopt things. But it's a slog. It's really hard. And you can do a lot of education and the government can do a lot. But also, it's really, it's often about what kind of community engagement you can do on a local level. And that is a lot of work, but it it needs to get done if we're going to have bike lanes and if we're going to have solar. And I wish I could wave a magic wand, but I can't. And so this, like a lot of climate solutions, and this kind of gets back to the kind of work trajectory does and that I think is powerful is you got to put your shoulder to the wheel and do the local engagement and educate people and help them understand, you know, what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it and why it shouldn't be threatening. That's not always going to work, but it's really critical. And, you know, let me give you an example of that. I mean, we have projects we're developing with the county of Peoria, right? So central Illinois, it's a set of projects, both with the county and with local landowners who 
we did some early engagement with and we got the city you know interested we got the county interested and we worked with you know the county administrator who's great who totally got the idea and then you know we worked with the local unions who are excited about building the project local environmental groups but then we also had to work with the neighbors and make sure they you know were drainage again they were concerned about drainage you know because it, i mean it's it's it is that is just that is the concern and you know reasonably so but what it meant was you know we went to the zoning board with this set of projects and we actually went you know three or more times but but we had a lot of voices in support we had no objections and because we were the first ones in the county we had to be the ones to educate the zoning board and the community about the benefits of solar and it was great and you know let me say you know something else about our model we work with really great local partners so in illinois we work with colleen callahan colleen is a just this incredible woman who has been working in and around agriculture in illinois for 40 years and i had never once in the you know 18 plus months we worked together, walked into a room in Illinois where someone did not know her. It was incredible. We have a project that is with a local cemetery association, and we walked into the cemetery association's office, and there are five or six you know people from the you know, board of the cemetery association, and I think to a person they knew her. Colleen, including a career working in in broadcasting, she was the USDA development director during the Obama administration. And sadly for us, but incredibly for her, she's now secretary of the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. So she's no longer a partner of trajectories, but she's the kind of partner we love to work with, who understands the community and who knows what people's concerns are and who helps us be responsive to those concerns. But that's the kind of work you need to do. And we think it pays dividends both for us and frankly, across the industry. And, and th- that rising tide, we think, lifts all boats. And it's, it's important for us to you know, maintain our standards and, and you know, really engage and do high-quality work and make communities happy, but also make our investors happy. And that's, at the end of the day, success. So if you, if you had a big pot of money, say $100 billion, and you could put it towards anything to maximize its impact on climate fight, where would it go? How would you allocate it? So... I'd give some of it to if it hadn't already been funded, this you know National Green Bank. I think there are you know two other places where where I would invest. So you know a lot of people try and say should we do research or deployment. I'm definitely a both kind of person, but there is long term R and D that we should be working on across disciplines, and and I would you know put a quarter of it to the long term R and D whether it's grid integration of renewables or whether it's more thoughtful infrastructure development, the water energy nexus, et cetera. But a lot of that money also needs to go in one way or another to retiring dirty assets. So we have dirty asset infrastructure that we need to close down. We need to close down you know, coal. We need to close down natural gas. We need to wean ourselves off of oil. We need to electrify everything. I think that yeah, I'm sure this is a common theme you've heard. Whether that is, you know, rent payments to the companies that you know have an expectation that those assets will continue operating, or whether that's just massive public bond to you know do major infrastructure improvement, that's where we need that money to go. 
but that that needs to happen aggressively, quickly, and that's also going to create an opportunity for you know, companies like Trajectory, but a whole suite of companies to step in and fill those gaps. I mean, you know, one of the most powerful things that's happened in the last couple of years is, you know, along with some you know other actors, Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign has been retiring coal plants across the country. It's incredibly powerful work, and it's not you know just the climate benefits. I think the thing that you know, increasingly we need to focus on is air quality in the U.S. should be a huge driver for these improvements. I mean, we see the impacts in terms of low birth rates, birth weights, asthma on kids and adults. I mean, there's research showing, you know, that there is clear impacts of high particulate concentrations in the atmosphere. Just makes it harder to think. Kids do worse on tests. Workers do Worse, I think there's a study looking at pear picking. Uh, you know, it, it, it is clear that air pollution is terrible for people's welfare. And that's true in the U.S., but it's, it's even more of a driver in you know, emerging markets. So while I was at OPIC, I did a fair amount of work in India working on deployment of off-grid solar. And you, you know... You go to Delhi, you go to Mumbai, and the air quality is just terrible. And when I lived in China, I didn't exercise the entire time I was there because you didn't want to breathe that air. So the co-benefits to getting off of coal and fossil fuels are huge. And, you know, climate should be obviously, I think, our number one motivation, but it results in a better world. And it's something that I think we we need to focus on more. So dirty asset retirement, I think, is is critical. And it will take, it's going to take a huge amount of money and and political will. And, you know, we haven't talked a lot about politics. And and I think that's reasonable. But you can't have this conversation in a vacuum, right? It's, It's hard to see where we get that sort of political support for the you know radical reinvention of the infrastructure that's required. It's a lot. It's a terrible way to end on a heat emergency day in Washington DC. Look, at the end of the day, I am I like to think of myself as a hopeful optimist, but I also think hope is something that you have to build yourself. You've got to work and create hope in the work you're doing and climate is a big wall to bang your head against. And I've done it my entire career. And it would be, I think, hard to go back to, you know, 18-year-old Josh and say, hey, look, you know, 20 years on, this is where we're at. I think that would be (laughs) pretty demoralizing to him. But I wouldn't have wanted to do anything different. And I still think there's a lot of runway for good work to be done. Well, I agree. Or I wouldn't be here. Yeah. I think that's a, g- a good point to end on. But yeah, this was this was great. You definitely bring a different perspective that we hadn't had yet on the pod or in my learning journey. So I'm very glad to have this discussion today. And thanks a lot for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for being on this journey. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. 
And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.